Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Oh, hi, welcome back um, to another episode of Chicana Close Switchers in our fifth season now with our first interviewee that we have uh, for this season. We have Mitzi Salgado, who um, holds a master's degree in international public policy and management from the University of Southern California with a specialization in border and immigration policy. She also has a bachelor's degree in women's studies from UC Riverside. Mitzi's mission is to help close economic gaps and information asymmetry for low-income communities of color, particularly Latinx and immigrants. Before starting the Cultura Media, Mitzi worked at Harvard University managing international programs for the Department of State in 90% of Latin America. Mitzi is a U.S. border, a U.S.-Mexico border and immigration policy expert in diversity, equ equity, and inclusion thought leader focusing on Latinx issues. Her experience developing diversity, equity, and inclusion programs helped shape her approach to social entrepreneurship and the cultura media. Mitzi is a proud transfronteriza and cultural community organizer. So welcome, Mitzi, to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. So happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you, Mitzi. <laughs> so, um, Ariana, if you could give us a little bit of background of how Mitzi and you met, <laughs> yeah, so I was, I always, um, it's, it's, it brings a smile to my face because um, the way that we started working at this uh, nonprofit that was affiliated with Harvard is really what brought us together. We were just like two Latinas just trying to like work in Boston. And, um, and I think I started a week before Mitzi uh, at this organization. And then Mitzi arrived and we were just like, I, I didn't know what to do with Mitzi <laughs> because she was just like, um, I, her slang, just the way that, um, no sé, me impacto. I think that's the best way <laughs> to say it. <laughs> but Mitzi can say it better. She can share the story better. Yeah. I mean, I remember arriving and I see Ariana and honestly, I felt, I felt really good seeing her there because I saw another Latino, another woman of color, and um, we were sharing the same office. So, and we had a door, which was perfect because we got to close it and just <laughs> do our thing whenever we got frustrated. Um, but yeah, we met at Harvard. And so um, I, I, I feel to this day very, very uh, lucky to have met Ariana, actually. Um, I still feel very, you know, very, I'm, you know, I, I, we've met a couple of years ago and um, have absolutely no partake in her success. Um, but I feel so proud of her, <laughs> uh, you know, just and having met her and all her accomplishments. So not enough praise I can give this girl. But yeah, we met um, uh, at this nonprofit and we were just we were just super happy, I think, to be in each other's presence and go through that journey that we were in together. And um, I think we were both kind of at a crossroads in our life and so um I I feel like just the short period of time that we worked together I learned so much from Ariana and um it was inspiring to see her 
fuel like her fire and just like go after what she wanted. And, and, um, eight months later, I well actually within, within a year, we both quit <laughs> and we were just like all, out to get the world. And I feel like we were both kind of on that same boat together and we both jumped ship. Um, in yeah. Honor, in honor of, um, uh, I don't know, dismantling institutionalized X, Y, and Z. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and also the pandemic hit just around the time that that happened. Um, so it made it a little bit more complicated mm-hmm. to transition out and transition into something else. But we'll get a little bit more into that um, afterwards. Um, so Mitzi, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know we we shared that we met about two, three years ago now, um, and we worked together. But to give our listeners a little bit of a better understanding as to who you are and, and how you became who you are today. Can you share a little bit about like what your role, what role did your socioeconomic status play in your educational journey? Okay. So, um, yeah, so I, um, I was actually born in Riverside. Um, uh, funny enough, I ended up going back to UC Riverside. That place has given me so much, um, in a lot of interesting ways. I was born there. Um, I went to school there. I met my husband there. Um, but uh, I grew up in Tijuana, um, originally from San Diego and Tijuana, Mexico. And um, we reason why I grew up in Tijuana was because growing up, I was at risk of being homeless in the United States when I lived in San Diego. That definitely did shape a lot of, of who I am today because we grew up, you know, there was a lot of poverty that we were in. And my dad um, was very frustrated with the American system in general. And um, my dad is actually highly educated in Mexico and um, in the United States, he couldn't even land a job interview because he has a very thick um, accent. He's, he's, he does not have white privilege whatsoever. And so he, he, you know, he came to the United States in the eighties. And so this, this was a time when there was not a lot of um, globalization of labor um, where international folks would come to the United States and work in under like under occupied jobs. So, you know, my dad faced a lot of discrimination and um, it led to us becoming at risk of being homeless when we were here in the U.S. And so that just is a direct correlation of how uh, race can go back to have a severe impact on, on access and poverty for people of color in general. And my dad's a perfect example of that. And so I respect my dad a lot because he kind of took, he's like the first person I really, uh, you know, saw how he he took kind of like the bull by the horn and he became an entrepreneur because there were no opportunities for him. So he decided to create his own. And so we moved to Mexico and um, there he felt more, he had more control over his autonomy in terms of like, he was living on his own terms. And at that point he didn't feel like we were at risk of being homeless anymore because we were now, you know, living in, in a country that we could afford living. Right. So I grew up in Tijuana. We moved around a lot. And I crossed the border to go to school. And um, that's really where I really started seeing how, how systemic um, nation- the United States manages immigration policy. And that's when I fell in love with immigration policy as, as someone I consider myself a victim of that, of that, of that system. 
Um, dealing with Border Patrol every day for 15 years is really something that can shape who you are because of the kinds of questions that you're asked based on how you look. And it, I really have been tested by that levels of colorism and privilege and not being, uh, uh, you know, I'm not black, but I don't identify as white. And just because of the, over the years, people asking me, um, why are you coming into the United States? See, being seen as a foreigner by a border patrol agent, I think has really just become internalized in my head, right? So that really has shaped who I am now. And I think seeing like the way that different people get treated at the border based on the color of their skin has really made me very conscious and aware of how, how that does play a severe role on, on our opportunities that are granted to us. So that's just to answer your question. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for, for sharing, Mitzi. I know it's, uh, it can be a little challenging looking back at those, at your upbringing, right? And, and realizing that in a way it was like a love-hate relationship, you know, being in those circumstances, but, you know, you've over- overcome that and that's telling. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I was in the closet, so to speak, for a long time. I was never comfortable talking about growing up in Tijuana. Like, that's a different, even I would say that's a whole different topic. But like, every time I ever talked about that, that people would always question whether I was an American. They would question, um, they they were seen, I, I don't know, I was seen as a threat because they thought that I was taking resources away from the United States. And I think that's also another thing that I, I learned was, Every single human being on this planet is entitled to an education in their country of birth, if they were, and even if they weren't, right? Like everyone is entitled to an education. Um, and I think like Malala, for example, like she's she's very much about that, right? So like that there's, I should not, that should never be a question for anybody. Everyone's entitled to, their, to an education. And if I felt like I was entitled to an American education system because I was, born there and I was I I was victim of like poverty because I was at risk of being homeless in Mexico that should not exclude me from being able to get an education in the U.S. right so yeah so I was very I was very quiet about it I have not been very outspoken about the fact that I grew up living in Tijuana because of that kind of pushback so talking about it now this is like a, I'm like coming out <laughs> yeah and I think this is pretty uh, common to like a lot of cities that are within the border uh, it's like either they're border towns and they have a lot of their um, kids, you know, going back and forth through the border to receive either services or different um, kinds of like things. Like if a lot of the kids are going to the education system in the U.S., but their parents live in Mexico, but they have to, you know, cross the border every day uh, to be able to do that. Um, it's a very interesting how like we see people using services and kind of trying to, you know, make the most out of what they have access to. When we have a lot of students who then study abroad, go to different universities, you know, now in college, they have an opportunity to do that. They can do that in high school when they're doing like the foreign exchange student, you know, thing, and no one kind of bats an eye for that. And how um, a lot of kids who have privilege um, or who have parents or families who are also immigrants, who can also have access to go to boarding schools or anything like that in Europe and uh, take advantage of free higher education uh, for their kids to apply to go to those universities uh, in Europe. 
And so I think that's just like interesting, the like levels of shame that you've been, you know, exposed to at a young age where you didn't feel comfortable sharing that. And, um, not realizing that it's like that was kind of the access that you had and you're just like why would I choose something that or even your parents right why would they choose something that would hurt you in the long run while they're trying to set up you know your your life um in, at a good start right like if they didn't have an opportunity to school now they have an opportunity for you to choose a different schooling for you and and try to get you to you know be more independent and have more opportunities uh work work-wise because you know some of our parents didn't have that choice of either even going to school um, because they had to definitely help out at home and, and try to earn a living at a very very young age so I think it's just like um like changing that and just saying like well that shouldn't be the perspective that we have of people who are from border towns who go into and use you know go to school or enrolled in, in the U.S. when they're also like U.S. citizens too which is so interesting um and I think um in terms of you know how did your family support your journey in higher education because I mean they they made the choice of you know having you enrolled in a school in the U.S. But how did that kind of play a role in your trajectory to going to higher ed? Mm. That's an interesting question. So I, I kind of want to break that up a little bit. Um, I think moving to Mexico for my parents was not an option. So I think the, the word choice, I think of like, what was a choice and what wasn't? I think what wasn't a choice was being homeless. And so we moving to Mexico was definitely not a choice. It was, I felt we were forced to move to Mexico um, because we needed to stay housed. Um, but what was the choice? What we did have control over was oh, also in Mexico, if you're not, a, if you're not a Mexican citizen, you're also not allowed to enroll in their public education system. So in a way I was, if I would have followed the rules cookie cutter, right, I would have been completely illiterate because in Mexico, I would have not been allowed to go to school while in the United States with the current infrastructure, I would not be allowed to study there. So like, then what do you expect from people in this situation that, that we don't know how to read or write, right? Like that is, makes no sense. Um, so what was a choice was, was in finding a way to enroll me into a school in the U.S. And I think that was my parents' way of taking back their situation and, and making the best of it, right? Um, what propelled me to get a higher education really put like, I don't know, fire under my ass. I hate saying that, but I mean, I really, it was only a matter of time when we would start talking about this. And Ariana, it's an inside joke between me and Ariana. When I would be no longer kosher in this conversation, it lasted like three minutes. Um, but anyways, drew that fire in me was, was the fact that like, I just did not want to be in that situation. I did not want, I absolutely felt like I, I just, I started education became so valuable to me overnight. Like I always, my parents always valued education because they knew that was the way out for, for out of poverty in their eyes. Um, but, but like for me personally, I, the, by the time I got to school at eight in the morning, I had already gone through so much you know, I had to get up at three 30 in the morning. I had to be ready the night before I had to be, um, I had to go through traffic at that time in Tijuana, right? Like I had to endure some of that 
dangers that, you know, you know, Tijuana is not as dangerous as people say, but at the same time, it's still not the safest city, right? It's still a big city. So having to, you know, you're up at three in the morning, you, you know, maybe you witness a crime and you, you get in line, maybe when you, the line is too long, so you cut and somebody gets off their car with a bat in their hand and threatens to beat your car because you cut them off. And and all that anxiety around getting just getting to the border and then still having to cross and talk to a border patrol agent as to why you're wearing a school uniform. All that is just so much. Right. And still, and then we drove 45 minutes inland once we crossed the border. So we still had to go through traffic in the United States just to get to school. So by the time I got to school at eight in the morning as a 10 year old. I just, I had already gone through so much. And so for me, education became so much more valuable, like the intrinsic value that I put that dollar sign on, 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 on my education, higher ed was just, there was no price on it. I was just like, it's my life. It is my life. So I have to do it because my life depends on it at this point. And that is how I took it. And, and I was just, I just dreamt of the day that I would actually sleep on campus. Oh, I can't wait to sleep in and just wake up at, you know, if my class started at 8 a.m., that I would wake up at 7.59 a.m. and just be, roll over out of bed and be in my class. And I just, that was my dream because, you know, I wanted to sleep in school. That was the thing I wanted to do. And so for me, it was just, if I'm not sure if I'm directly answering your question, but I think the answer is, just education became so much more valuable because there was just so much more at stake for me to get there. Yeah. And you also had, well, the privilege, right. That you were born in the U S and that you're light skinned. So unlike your parents, you were to utilize those privileges and, and get further in life because of the sacrifices, your parents, your family made. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. I um, definitely did benefit from that colorism. I have to say for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's like a, a interesting how, like, because you were exposed to like two different systems, right? Like you kind of saw what life was in Tijuana, and you also got to see what also uh, were the possibilities in the US and also in school. I think that also kind of um, gives you a sense of like, well, now you have a choice of picking, okay, so this is, you know, the life that you could have in Tijuana, or if I put a little bit of effort and know that you put so much work just to get to school they would be kind of um pointless if you didn't do well in it um because of how much effort it was just to get to the the classroom uh where some folks as you mentioned like they might have lived around the corner of the school where they could just literally walk there um and just be able to be there um and not take such a long journey to get to and from school Mm -hmm. yeah and I mean, um, yes. And, and also like, there's this, you know, there was still, it's not like that cookie cutter either. Right. Like, I mean, I mean, we were late all the time. We were late. We were late getting up at three thirty in the morning. I was still late to school. I was late to school so much. And, and this is a part that like, you know, right now with the cultural media, which I know we'll talk in a little bit, but we're create, we're doing a documentary on transfronterizos because we want to shed light on this. And and here's the thing: even though we woke up at three thirty in the morning and we were late to class, 20 percent of our grade was dependent on on attendance. So I could not. I was at a glass ceiling as to how high my grades could actually be 
because I could not possibly get an A in every single one of my classes because I was just not able to because I was late because my grade depended on 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 my ability to show up on time. And so talking about how the education system actually takes some of these things for granted and doesn't actually um, it it does benefit and privilege and prior like other kids who have other privileges, right? Like if you say there, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't living in Tijuana, but I was actually homeless. I did, my parents decided to take the punch and become homeless. I, maybe I would still be late because I was, I was tired because I couldn't sleep at night in the cold under a bridge or whatever, right? Like my circumstances, right? Like I, I was, but I was being penalized at the education system for being on time or for being late for something that was completely out of my control. I had no control over how early I would get because it was really up to the border patrol. Um, if he wanted to delay a lane or not, sometimes he would just close the lanes. Other times he, he, you know, there's, and so that's, that's to me, that's just the, from the train of thought that I come from and that my, how my experience has been shaped. It's for me, it's really just really hard to think how this education system is still kind of failing kids because like, it assumes so much about somebody's level of uh, privilege. And when we talk about privilege, I, I, the, my poverty really did affect the, my ability to do well in school because I just could not afford to live in the United States. And therefore I had to be late and my, and my grades were affected by that. So I hope that kind of helped kind of shed light a little bit more on like what some of those challenges were. And so like, there was no way for me to be a valedictorian, even though I was doing my best and probably working my ass off two, two or three times harder than the valedictorian was. And I couldn't tell anybody, I couldn't tell my teachers because if they, if I did, they would expel me. So I was just kind of living in the shadows of like my struggle and no one knew and no one could know. Right. So it's just really hard to imagine like, you know, there, there's really a price that came with that. Even, even though I had the privilege of crossing the border, there was, it was still not free. You know what I mean? It wasn't like pure privilege where it was just given to me. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, but yeah, like, I guess um, it's always good to acknowledge some of the privilege yeah. and within the context that it was, that it existed. Right. So that's exactly. important. Yeah. Okay. So let's um, jump to something <laughs> a little lighter. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about cult, cult, Cultura Media. Like, what is it? Can you tell us more about it? Yeah. So, um, yes. And yes, I'm, and it is a little depressing. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is, but it's, it's the reality, right? And so like, and um, yeah, to transition into that, um, for sure, you know, and the fact that I was able to even cross and that I don't take that for granted at all. Um, and because of that, um, over the years, you know, I had this idea over my, like in my, the back of my head, like the cultural media and like, what does that mean? And like thinking of like, you know, navigating this world that we all live in and as people of color and, and Latinas and seeing how there's like, no, not a lot of cultural relevance on like a lot of the stuff that we have access to, like, right. When we talk about representation and we talk about like, um, visibility and, and, and inclusion. Um, I don't see as much cultural relevancy as there should be. Right. And, and in a way that's kind of like honoring our, our, our experience and being seen. And so in 2016, after, you know, who won, um, I was living in Mexico at the time. And I remember 
very being very frustrated about the way that he was speaking about the border and how the border is usually like talked about in and I was like man like this is I'm like right here and you know I was I was staring at the border when he won and he was talking about how it was just like people were flooding into the United States and I'm just like I mean okay like I was just literally looking at the border and I just like where are the people flooding from right um and so I thought that we needed to kind of become more the media I should say needed to be more culturally sensitive and more culturally relevant to an entire like system of of like I guess education or like epistemology right like the 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 study of immigration as a whole needed to be completely reframed and um and I thought that one of the ways in which it was being framed in the moment was through the media and I thought well I was you know simmering this idea and as I developed it more over the years I I realized that like information needed to be culturally relevant and also part of the reason why communities of color and specifically monolingual immigrant communities are excluded from this inclusion is because they're not being represented in the language because there's that barrier right of language so i was like okay you know i think the first step is that we create we create media in spanish that is culturally relevant to them um that that they're represented and it's and it's a mirror of who they are and I think that's a good first step, right? And so then, you know, we, after we jump shipped, um, we, uh, Iran and I from uh, this nonprofit, um, I had an opportunity to kind of like think about it a little bit more. And then I decided, you know, this is the time to start this. And so I went ahead and I started the, the Cultura Media um, and it's been a wild ride. Um, but it was, it's with the intention of, um, creating, um, resources and media content, um, that is culturally relevant to, uh, Latino communities and immigrant communities and, and how that evolves between cultures, right? Like how some specific cultures are seen and, and perceived and how they relate to the media or the content that they consume and how, um, how that changes. And so embracing the differences amongst everybody and also acknowledging, um, like you're saying, Ariana, like acknowledging the privileges and acknowledging the, the the barriers at the same time, but like in a way that's culturally sensitive and 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 culturally relevant to us. Um, I think that's that's where we're at. Amazing. I like um, I like the name Cultura Media, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it it combines just like both sides, and it makes it clear that you're about highlighting cultura yeah and it's like I was thinking about it this morning because you know like in this journey I get like in my head and I'm just over I start to overthink and I'm like no then it's all in the name it's all in the name just follow the name that's why you named it so just follow the name and I'm like okay and that's how I recenter myself now actually like because a lot of organizations will like I don't want this to happen right like I want to make sure that even though we're very young uh, we're a little over a year old um, I, as we evolve, I want to stay on course. And so if anything, any project that we add on or whatever collaboration, I want to make sure that it's, it's, it's fulfilling its purpose and it's intentional and the best way to stay authentic in that aspect is just to evaluate, like, what is this other organization's intent to partner with us? And are they trying to make the community better? Or are we just like a token organization to them? So, Yeah. 
um, the, the cultura does help keep it like authentic, I think. Yeah, can you tell us about what um, kind of media or articles or kind of what um, kind of projects have you been able to do with Cultura Media? Yeah, so I'm super excited to share that like we just finished launching our first issue of a magazine. Um, it's 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 amazing. It was a whole year process. Um, it was uh, we started with a magazine because we when we started off doing some research on like how people would consume media. I think the first step we needed to do is to legitimize ourselves, and um, uh, the Latino community. Um, still very much values written content, even though they consume video uh, media uh, more and more every day based on just our access to videos just from Facebook and, and TikTok. TikTok's a thing among the Latino community, I swear. And so um, they still very much rely on, on uh, sources that are written for um, just like inform basic the nature of the information too, right? Like if it's like legal stuff, if it's economic based, if it's education based, if it's healthcare based, they're all they still very much rely on the on the written content that's out there, not so much on the video content. Um, so then we decided to you know launch the the Cultura magazine. Uh, our first issue is based on health and wellness, and we talk about issues that are normally issues that are barriers to the Latino community trying to navigate the healthcare system, right? And so our goal is to say, if our my mom and dad who don't speak English, um, if they have access to this magazine and they have a question about like the most basic thing about talk to a doctor, right? They can go to our magazine and they can read through it and, and see an answer that they're looking for, right? And so we did a lot of research on what, what those questions were. Um, one of them is like, how do you access your medical records? What do you expect with COVID, right? COVID was, has been a big conversation. Um, so like, how do you actually save your, your vaccination card on your phone? You know, things like that. And to make sure that this is culturally relevant and culturally sensitive, as we go back to those pillars, meaning is, is the information easy to understand? Can anybody understand this with any level of education? As long as they can read can they understand it, right? We don't want to make this flowery over complex topic more complicated than it is. Is it culturally relevant? Meaning, are we assuming anything about the reader? Are we assuming that our readers know something that they that we shouldn't, right? We don't want to be condescending and we don't want to be paternalistic. Trying to enrich our community by educating and closing these barriers that sometimes are taboo conversations, but in a way that is so culturally friendly. And that we're like, hey, soy tu prima, yo soy tu comadre. We're gonna let's talk about this, girl. Like it's okay. Let us talk about it. It's a safe space. And I want our community to feel safe and comfortable opening up and talking about these issues where they can. Yeah. And I think that's a interesting, you know, media or like the format that you're, you know, sharing this information is through a magazine, just because a lot of people, especially for, for us who have access to internet, we forget that not everyone else of the demographic of if we're talking to our elders or um, older family members, how um, misinformation gets spread out so quickly. And like, um, there's been a lot of conversations about WhatsApp and like other social media platforms where people are having not only mis huge misinformation about COVID, but 
how you're mentioning so many great topics about like sex health, like sex health and, you know, what is it like having our parents be more independent and understand how to navigate themselves to have more autonomy because mm -hmm. the burden can't be all on their kids. And we're also assuming about each of our family dynamics and what we have access to. So I think it's great that this information is in Spanish, you know, something different because a lot of the information that we have is in English. Um, and that could also open up a lot of um, questions and for them to open their mind in a way that makes sense for them. Because again, our, we, we have so much, so much assumptions, especially for our millennial and Gen Z or, you know, family members who are like, yeah, this is, you know, easy, this is thing. But having other people, you know, specifically spend all this time to be able to share this in the platform that makes sense uh, would be helpful because the, the, all that, you know, responsibility doesn't have to be within the kids or gang kids. It's um, letting them know that, you know, there are, there is a point where how to have a healthy dynamic within our family, also within ourselves and what we need to demystify in terms of things that they're not comfortable talking. Um, and all this like idea that, you know, uh, all the, 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 the things that we grew up with and how we can change it and how we can understand our kids, right? Because there's uh, so much time and energy spent on kids learning about their parents or their grandparents or the older people. This time around, you're kind of flipping it and say, well, you as a, you know, family, how can we give you tools to have a better understanding? Because I think that even helped my mom when she read um, a book about, um, a young girl who went to college and the struggles that she went through in terms of what it was like doing college. And that brought her a better, she read it after I already finished school, but you know, like for her, it's helpful to kind of have an idea so she can have a discussion with, you know, some of my aunts that are starting to kind of think about what college looks like for their own kids. And she can advocate for some of my nieces and nephews about, Hey, how can I, challenge some of our family members to do better yes yes and you see the difference you know you're like wow it just totally makes sense and so that's and, and I agree I think you know I think we all love our parents so much and we all want to help them as much as we can um but at the same time I do think that they deserve to be autonomous they deserve to make their own decisions. They, they should be able to rely on their and themselves and, and, and they should be able to be sustainable. They, we owe them that and they deserve it, right? Like just like anybody else. And if we can do that by giving them some resources and, and, and maybe paving the way or pointing in the right direction, that's, that's perfect. Right. And because everybody wants to be autonomous, right? Like we all want to have like our ability to make our own decisions. We don't like anybody having to depend on anybody to make decisions for us so like I think it comes from a place of love that we actually want our parents to like learn these things um and like you're saying it's absolutely a healthy dynamic I mean I cannot wear enough night cream to hide the wrinkles and the stress of thinking of my parents like when they end up becoming completely dependent on me because that's so stressful and that is not a burden that anyone should carry right and it's not like it's a problem it's that they are it's not it's not a matter of that it's the bottom line is everybody's entitled to their own autonomy period and also sharing uh, to parents prepare when your 
children say no to you, <laughs> you know, like that kind of also will be important because uh, you have every right to say no to them and to normalize that that's not something that's one disrespectful uh, to it's not um, an end all be all um, that they can always find ways of, you know, being able to have now, if their kids are adults, right, where they have a choice of like in your situation, if you are thinking about your parents' retirement or when they stop working and what are ways that they can still provide um, a life that, you know, is sustainable, is healthy, and that doesn't require that you always be in the picture. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think of it like when, when I talk to like my peers, people like, uh, like me, you know, like first gen kids, especially for unfortunately our community is still relying on the daughters to do all this work you know i don't see my brother i have a brother i'm not gonna call him out in this podcast but i do have a brother and i don't see the kind of pressure that they put on i mean now more than before because i'm very vocal about this but but my brother never got as much uh pressure from my parents to provide be that provider for them when they retired, like I was right. Like I was, because I'm the daughter and then I'm also the oldest daughter, you know, like that's tough. And I don't see my brother having that same pressure um, before I didn't as much as now, but still not nearly as much. So yeah, I absolutely, I agree a hundred percent. And, and, and that's why I'm like, okay, if I'm going to say no, then um, let's negotiate. Right. And I think learning how to negotiate as a kid and, and, and normalizing that too. So we don't, I mean, I don't, I, so I don't feel guilty, right? Like, cause it's also a matter of like, how am I going to sleep at night or in 30 years from now, do I, am I going to feel good if my parents are not around anymore that I did my best? And that's what that haunts me personally. So I'm like, okay, let's negotiate. I can't say yes to you every time. I cannot always be there. And, and that's not possible. How can I help you make sure that you make this decision next time? right? Like, let me give you the resources and the tools. And, and if you need me, then I'll, then we can talk. Right. But now I, I, this is what I can give you. And so, yeah, I think normalizing the fact that we say no, and then being okay with negotiating with our parents and, and finding a, a very healthy boundary for everybody. And it also reminding them that like you empowering them to be, completely self-sustaining them and, and saying like, Hey, tú puedes. like, I got you. You're not alone. Just because I'm saying no, doesn't mean that you're alone. It means that you can do this. And I believe in you and you have me to fall back on. And I'm not going anywhere at the end of the day, you know, we love our parents. We're not going to abandon them. You know what I mean? So I think that's what they're afraid of. And it's just like, if we say, no te voy a dejar, que estoy contigo. I got you, you got this, you know, I'll watch you walk. Yes. So Mitzi, where can we find this magazine? Good question, Ariana. So, <laughs> um, so we are actually in the middle of our relaunch, but we will be finishing our relaunch. So if anybody hears this podcast when when it's you know after February 14th, as of February 14th, they can access the magazine on our website um, at the cultura. Um, or culture in Spanish, dot org, the cultura dot org. Um, they can uh, purchase the magazine, uh, subscribe to it via, we can send them a copy, or they can subscribe to it digitally and access it digitally as well. Um, we are giving away 
100 copies right now. So um, if you follow us on our social media um, at Instagram, uh, the cultura underscore, and send us a message um, with uh, Chicana Cold Switchers that you, you know, heard this podcast, we will give you away a, a copy. And, um, you know, we're, we're trying to be talk about sustainability, right? And so having that quick conversation about like, Latinas are the least funded um, entrepreneurs in, in the entire spectrum of entrepreneurship. And so we want to make sure that we provide this resource um, and make it available as much as we can. And we will be working our best to provide that resource free of completely free. Um, until we do that, though, the magazine will have a slight charge, uh, but it's still very we're trying to keep it as affordable as we can. Um, so the magazine is $4.99 right now, but um, we're hoping to make maybe lower that cost as we get more funding and make. And, and of course, all of the other articles that we're writing, we always try to do complimentary articles to the magazine. So on our website and our social media, we'll start producing a lot more stuff that is um, obviously that'll be completely accessible, that it complements a lot of the stuff that's in the magazine. So, um, you know, if you know of any sponsors, <laughs> you know, we're always open. That's amazing, Mitzi. Well, um, any lasting words as we conclude our episode with you and Cultura Media and everything cool that you're doing? Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, very nice to meet you again, Patricia, Patti, um, and Ariana. It's always a pleasure to have uh, see you. Yeah, just follow the Cultura Media on Instagram. Um, spread the word. If you feel like you resonate with anything that we talked about today, it means that you... You, you are Team Cultura, and we want to, we want to, you know, be an ambassador of, of our movement. And the goal is to really make people more sustainable. And it, that comes from a lot of love, I think. And so I hope that everybody can support us and follow us on our social media and then share the magazine. Also, if you don't speak Spanish, doesn't mean that someone in your community does um, and that they don't need that resource. So if you don't speak Spanish, you can always buy that magazine and gift it to somebody else who you know may need it. And that's always a good way of also remembering like, and if you work for a nonprofit or if you work for an organization and you see that there are no bilingual resources in your organization, it is your job and your duty to make sure that there's inclusion of language in, in, and at that place. So at the very least, if you um, don't feel like there's much you can do besides raising awareness around providing bilingual uh, resources in your community or in your organization, make sure that you raise that up and that it becomes available. I think that's the best thing you can do is have language inclusion everywhere that that way everyone can make better decisions for themselves and they don't have to depend on others to make those decisions for them because also people will make decisions on behalf of monolingual immigrants that monolingual immigrants didn't agree to. And, and so everyone should be entitled to their own voice. So that's all I have to say on that. Awesome, Mitzi. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure, as always, to chat with you. Uh, we could go on on different topics forever uh, because that's how good these, uh, our conversations are. But, um, you know, uh, it's a pleasure. And we wish you the best of luck with uh, Cultura Media, with every all the endeavors that you're taking on. And I'm sure we'll see it um, We'll see more followers on your page and we'll see a physical copy soon, Mitzi. <laughs> yes, I will go ahead and send that to you guys. <laughs> 
Thank yeah, you we're so excited much. to see just the growth of, of uh, the mm-hmm. projects that you're working on. That's like very much needed in a lot of our communities and uh, wishing you all the best and hopefully to, to have you back on so we can hear more about uh, the growth and all the, the, the things that you're doing now as your organization grows and grows. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. This week's BIPOC's business shout-out is Playero. You can find them at playero.com. And they are a beach lifestyle brand based out of Puerto Rico. Their roots run deep in surf and beach culture. They've been in existence since 1977. Their founder, Tony Jordan, recalls um, his dad's words when he committed to opening this surf shop. And his father asked, are you going to sell t-shirts all your life? And if you were to ask him today, he wouldn't change a thing. So check them out. They sell all kinds of stuff, um, merchandise, uh, from hoodies to keychains to beach shorts to long sleeves uh, for everyone in the family. Um, And they have three locations. Uh, one in the city of Rincón, Calle Loiza, and in the mall called Plaza Las Americas. So if you're ever in Puerto Rico, check them out. But in the meantime, you can also visit their website at playero.com. For all of our listeners, you can email us at Chicana code switchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shout outs and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana code switchers and on Twitter at X code switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you and don't forget, switch the code, don't let the code switch you.